Welcome back to Speaking to Stacy, a podcast sharing practical advice for an action-driven lifestyle. My name is Stacy Liddell, and I'm really excited to be able to share this episode with you today because this week I have something a little different for you. Before I introduce my guest, I want to say a big thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen in and learn something new. This week, my guest is Emily Boland. Emily holds a master's in social work and is the director of clinical operations at the Truman Group. She has lived abroad in many countries and this has allowed her to experience life as an expat firsthand. She works as a clinician providing teletherapy to expats living in remote areas all over the world where clinical support is difficult to come by. I think this episode will benefit anyone who is planning to move abroad or those of you struggling to adjust to your new home. If you stick around until the end, you'll find out why you should never kick jelly tots barefoot in the cold. Here are three key highlights from today's episode. 1. Why there is no such thing as an abnormal experience when moving abroad. 2. Learning that moving abroad is a great exercise in resiliency. And 3. How to prepare mentally for your move abroad. So without any further ado, here's my guest, Emily Boland. I'm speaking with Emily Boland today. And Emily, as is the sort of custom on my show, I don't normally introduce the guests. I allow them to introduce themselves just in case there's something that maybe doesn't show up on your bio online that you'd like to share with everybody. So would you give a little bit of a background into yourself and who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, So I work with an organization called Truman Group, and what we do is provide online therapy and support specific to expats who are living all over the world. Um, So my background is I'm a clinical social worker, um, and I've been practicing therapy for over 25 years. Um, And I am a part of a practice where everybody is a therapist, um, doctoral and master trained. And the unique thing that brings us all together is this expat piece. Um, that all of us are wanting to support the expat community. Um, most of us in my own background is I grew up as an expat and I currently live as an expat. Um, so while there are clinical threads that have nothing to do with cultural adjustment and being an expat, our group is kind of the meeting ground between the cultural adjustment experience and living overseas and seeking help and support um, typically for mental health issues that may or may not be in place as a, in conjunction with that. But, um, so that's what I do and it's all online. Sorry. It's all online. And we typically only see folks when they are outside of the U S. Okay. So it's mainly or, or only for U S citizens based outside no, of the country. It's, it's basically for any expats who are seeking care in English. Um, we do also have a few providers who can work in Spanish and French, um, but that's currently what our language capacity is right now. We're working to expand it. Um, German. Okay. I think we have a German-speaking provider as well. Okay, excellent. All right, so there might be those listeners who are trying to understand why I'm speaking to Emily today, and the reason why I reached out to Emily was my sister and I, Jade, who we have had on the podcast a couple of times, her and I were discussing our experiences as ex- expats um, after having left South Africa. Jade went to London and I came here to South Korea. And my sister and I had very different experiences from very different cultural encounters that we had. And we'd never spoken about it before. And it just sort of it made me interested into trying to understand how is it that she went to an English-speaking country, England, and I went to a non-Western country, South Korea, and we had vastly different experiences, yet I seemed to adjust better than she did. Um, so that's kind of the, was the basis for looking into research and trying to understand how these things work. And I came across Dr. Truman's research, and then I reached out to Dr. Truman and Emily responded to my email and from that email conversation that's how we arrived here today and so I'd just like to formally again say thank you Emily for for giving up your time today and um, you mentioned in that first meeting something that's sort of uh, what's the word I'm looking for it's the sort of center point of of your work it's what you call the cultural adjustment cycle 
And maybe if you could explain the cu cultural adjustment cycle a little bit for everybody and how it normally works uh, for an expat to sort of settle into a new environment. Sure. And this is certainly not something that we've developed. The cultural adjustment cycle has been around for a long time, but it's something we talk a lot about with our clients. Um, and what's interesting is if, if you like Google cultural adjustment cycle, you'll see a really beautiful picture. Um, I think Tufts put out a good one, but there's, there's a couple different ones, that, ones out there and it looks just like a roller coaster because, and I think that I love that picture because I think that that's what it really feels like for people. Um, that, um, of course, the cultural adjustment cycle varies by so many factors. It varies on who you are as an individual. It varies on the country that you're working to adjust to living in. It varies on how um, the, the external circumstances of how you got there. Um, and it, you know, so a lot of times people will say, you know, how long is it going to take? And I, I wish I could say exactly. So I can give a rough framework of what is kind of with quotes, a typical experience, and it varies all over the place. Um, and, and, and similar in some ways, I think about it as the grief cycle, um, because we're, we're certainly talking about a grief, the grief cycle over the past couple of years. It's something that all worldwide we're visiting a lot more. Um, but when you talk about that, there's, there's a, an element of grief with the cultural adjustment cycle. And I, what I mean by that is, um, it looks kind of linear. And I think people like to think about adjusting to a new country as a linear process when in fact it, it's not nearly that organized in my experience. So from a rough framework, what people will often resonates when people talk about arriving to a country is that initial phase, we call it the honeymoon phase where we're so excited to be there. It's like landing in the wizard of Oz where all of a sudden everything's in technicolor, right? Where you walk out and you're like, I didn't know that it could look like this or smell like this or there's food like this. And, and you kind of fall in love with everything around you. Um, and then after too short of a time, in my opinion, as most honeymoons are, we enter kind of this cultural shock where all of a sudden all of these differences that we found so endearing aren't nearly as endearing. Um, I remember we arrived in Panama and I thought it was so great that we lived in a rainforest and then I was really tired of worrying about poisonous snakes and really scary animals that could enter our garden at any point in time. And so sometimes those things that we most delight in early on are things that we um, no longer delight in and kind of can make, can prove most difficult. Um, and then after that is initial adjustment phase. And this can happen anywhere from the first month to the first six months um, but it's where we start to integrate that experience. We start to integrate um, living, you know, kind of seeing what are the pros versus how do we adjust to that. So um, using that Panama example, I was able to find all of these um, products in the local market that you put out to make sure that poisonous snakes don't enter your garden. And that was really exciting. <laughs> I put a lot of investment in that. Um, and But it was that initial adjustment. So we could make sure there weren't poisonous snakes, but we could also delight in um, a traffic jam because a sloth was crossing the street and our children got to see what a sloth looks like. And that was kind of exciting. Um, and, but that's that initial adjustment. And then beyond that um, is what's, what we call is kind of acceptance and um, allowing ourselves to live in a space of accepting our current environment and kind of noting what we most love about it versus the ways that it's not like home and then moving through that. Um, and that really, I think, it can look anywhere like a few months to a year. Um, I got some very wise counsel actually from the director of our practice the last time we moved, which isn't going to sound clinical, but I love it. Where he said, okay, pull out a calendar, like a paper calendar, and put a big circle around the date 90 days out. And basically sit in that space. And you can wonder about, do you like it here or not? But you don't get to definitively claim how you feel about living here until you have three months, which I thought was... Um, much of what Sean Sherman says, I find to be really wise. <laughs> that was one of those things that I carry with me. And I think I still have our calendar somewhere with a big red circle around it. But the idea of not every day saying, do I like it here? Do I not like it here? Do I want to go home? Because that will drive anyone. It will just be so hard. It's kind of like a breakup from a relationship. When you move into a space where that person isn't there, you're in a space where your country or community isn't there. So there's loss. There's um, all of those feelings. There's you know, regret everything that goes along. That's where that grief piece can line up in the cultural adjustment cycle. Okay, perfect. That's great.
I mean, I'm not surprised that moving abroad is something that can be a traumatic experience for, for people. The one thing that does fascinate me is the variance in experiences. And I think you touched on a few things there. You said it depends on the person, obviously the individual, the country that they're moving to, external circumstances and things like that. Is there anything that sort of seems to be universal across mm. most people that causes them to struggle to adjust specifically? Yeah. Well, take my background into consideration, but in my experience, of course, it's going to be your support network. Um, and so I think what's interesting is um, there's the moving element of moving abroad. And so I think um, when we move abroad, it's easy to really get hung up in all of the challenges to adjusting to this new country. But I think it's really important that we don't forget that just moving, I mean, I don't know, what's the studies show that the three most stressful events are death, divorce, and moving. Um, and so you're moving and you're moving abroad. And in many ways, I think the moving abroad, in some ways, it's going to make it much harder. In other ways, it's going to make it, there are elements that are, that make it easier. Um, so an example of that leads to this support network. And, and where we often see folks coming in for care at Truman Group is um, they come in a little bit swifter because the supports that they had to rely on, whether that be people, whether that be coping skills with stress and anxiety, whatever it is, they may not have access. Um, so a good example of it is if you move to um, Addis, Ethiopia, and you're a runner, and, and what you do is you run every day, that's really challenging. Because in Addis, Ethiopia, in some scenarios, you can't just walk out your door like you can in Northern Virginia and go for a three-mile run. And so not having access to those practices, which I'm sure resonates for you as a personal trainer, and also um, the other piece is the people. Um, and it can be the people at your local you know, convenience store who know your name and you walk in and they ask about your dog and you don't have that sense of being known. And so I would say that the most common thing that I see is just having a space where you feel supported and known. And really what's, what's interesting is I think a lot of us move overseas because it kind of self-selects in some ways that you, you, people who move overseas can run a little bit anxious and we can run a little bit um, where we want to know who our community of support is. And that's because people who run really low key or maybe low mood, they're not moving overseas. They, do you know how hard, you know how hard it is to move overseas yeah. and you have to move a pet? Oh my gosh. It's like, it's like errors. You know, it's just very, I think it's really challenging. So in some ways, um, I think that moving overseas entails a level of strength and resilience and openness that we want to do it. Um, and so what I often will say to folks when they're in that early setting is, is, do you have one person, just one person that you can check in with who knows how you're doing, who, when they say, how are you? You can actually say, oh my gosh, let me tell you, like, I'm still fighting with the internet company to be able to get a secure line. And by the way, I'm doing it in a language that I don't speak. And by the way, I'm doing it in a country where no one works between 12 and 4 PM. And, and all of those, by the ways that one person who can sit in that space with you and acknowledge, yeah, I get it. And, and really, I think we're used to it having access to a community, but initially and certainly overseas, it might just be one person and that's okay. That makes a lot of sense. Jumping on that moving and having that support, would it be an overgeneralization to say that, for example, I moved with my then girlfriend, who's now my wife, do people who move as couples tend to find it easier or is that uh, generalization? Um, that's such a good question. Um, and I'm trying to think in so much depends on the person, right? There are some couples who are like, it's much harder because my, <laughs> my partner is very unhappy. And so there's that element, but I would also, I would want to say, and I'm curious, I'm currently in a committed partnership. And so, and I, and I think if my spouse were on this call, he's like, it depends on the day in the sense that yes, you have an automatic support right there, which is phenomenal. But on the days when he or I aren't happy, that's really challenging too. So I think it depends so much on the person. And I think that there is a unique set of challenges for people who are moving without a partner, because you have to find that person early into your experience. And I think they're again, dependent on where you go, 
there are many spaces where currently I live in a community that's very focused on families and it's a wonderful place to be. And we just had our youngest kid go to college. And honestly, I'm like, what are we going to do? Because like, I can still go to all these family type events, but it's, you know, I actually had a play date with my dog, which is embarrassing to say, because like, (laughs) clearly there are some places where it's really great. It's such a great post for little kids. And there are other places that are really wonderful posts if you don't have a little kid. So I think it's knowing and not even knowing what you're getting. Yes. It's knowing what you're getting into in order to gauge your expectations. That doesn't mean go, don't go somewhere that you're not a perfect fit for. It just means go into the experience, having some awareness of what the challenges might be and what the benefits are. So you can feel like you're making an active choice. Okay. That's very interesting. Just in my case, specifically the program that we left South Africa to come to Korea for, you don't really get a choice of where you're going. So you know that you're going to South Korea, but going to Seoul and going to the city that we're in, Jeonju, are two hugely different experiences. So that's quite interesting because we didn't really know what to expect from where we were going. And so I think it was almost a little bit more difficult to try and assess what we're getting ourselves into. We had like a a broad picture that we were given by the Korean education ministry to, I think to try and help you adjust Right. Um, But other than that, you arrive at orientation and then after orientation, you're given like a little card with the province and the city on it. There you go. That's who you're going to. (laughs) Yeah. I think in some ways, dependent on the person, that would be really challenging. And in other ways, not having a preconceived idea or expectations of what it might be in some ways can also make the adjustment easier because it's, you're just a blank slate. The interesting thing with this whole situation is you get, you get to write down your first, second and third choice, but it's very clearly stated on the application that you shouldn't really have any expectations. I think they do that because they know that, I mean, everyone that's going is coming from an English speaking country. So it's Australians, New Zealanders, Canadians, Americans, South Africans, and Irish people. So they know that it's going to be an adjustment for sure coming from any one of those countries. And I think they basically try to say to you, you need to be as flexible as possible, which is obviously trying to help you with dealing with and not building up a picture in your head like, oh, I I can't wait to get to Seoul. And then, no, sorry, you're going to a rural village down south. Yes. And then you're kind of mentally destroyed by not getting your first choice. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) I was looking at some notes that I wrote about my sister and I's experience. And maybe you can speak from personal experience or maybe there's something in the literature that you might know of. I was looking at my own experience and I, I think mine was pretty atypical. My honeymoon phase, the way that you described it, seemed to kind of extend for almost a year. Like I was mm-hmm. very much in love with everything that was new and everything that was different. And then I had like a really weird experience. It must have been about eight, maybe nine months in where even the things about South Africa that I specifically don't like I started almost yearning for them. For example, yeah. South Africa is known to be relatively unsafe compared to developed countries. Right. And I started even missing like that wild, wild west yeah. aspect of South Africa yeah. because Korea is so safe. It's really been difficult to explain to South Africans how safe Korea is. It's unimaginable <laughs> to believe like a country like this exists. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. It's, and it's just small things like leaving yeah. your wallet on a bus and then yeah. getting a phone call from wow. the police because someone's handed it in to the bus driver who's dropped it off right. at the police station or dropping your identity card. Not that I've done right. it, but I've heard stories of dropping your identity card and then same thing, you know, the immigration office calls right. you up, hey, your thing's been handed in. Just small things that generally wouldn't happen. Yeah, it's small things, but I started missing <laughs> yeah. a bit of the craziness. Right. Are things like that even normal? I think that's, you know, of course I'm going to say that's normal. Everything is pretty normal. Um, and, and I think <laughs> it's surpri- because I, I hear in that what you're missing are things that are not in your current experience. And so, of course, you're going to miss. I joke that our first tour was in Vienna, Austria, and we it was a lovely, I mean, it was lovely. But this sounds so silly. You cannot find a moist cookie in Vienna, Austria. And I'm married to someone <laughs> and a whole family who loves cookies. So it was almost funny that 
our longing was how can we find a ba- like a really good bakery? And I'm not a great, you would think I became a great baker. No. Um, so I think what some of what you're speaking to is the sense of longing that we have for what's familiar. And I think in some ways it can also be how we identify perhaps. So I, I think there's a complexity to it and there's not really the closest word I've come up with is nostalgia, but it's so much more than that because oftentimes the longing that we have, and I think what makes it challenging to be an expat is expat communities are also so transient, right? So some of the places um, when, if you ever move from where you're at now from South Korea, there's this, you'll find that sense of longing. You'll, you'll certainly miss that safe culture and environment. <laughs> I promise no matter where you go, because I, I don't know anywhere else it's like that. But I think the complexity to it is that you're also in a community with typically other components, other expats, and it's a community that's evolving, right? So I think there's this sense of loss in that when we move away from spaces and also knowing that that space isn't like that. So you move from South Africa at around the same time your sister does. So the idea of, let's say a holiday comes up and you think, oh, I just wish I was at home. But that whole concept of what home is, is also different because maybe your next door neighbor is not there at that home or your sister is also moved on. And so there's this strange sense of longing, not only for a space we used to be in, but it's a space that also no longer exists. So there's that exponential sense of loss in some ways that it's not like you can just go home. And so I think the other piece to missing the things that you don't even like, that's really funny to me because I think some of it can, it can be surprising. And it's also who you are in that context. Um, I used to live in New York city and I, I didn't love it. Some people love it. And I get that. Um, but I didn't love the traffic and the honking and how you could barely walk down a sidewalk on Saturdays. And then we were living in a country where you're, it's illegal to honk your horn, which is funny to me. And I, I was so excited. And then I remember getting back to New York and just like being so excited to be in a crowded street with honking horns and lots of small, like it was all of the things like there were rats running amok and really, and it just, I was so happy <laughs> because I think it's, it's what we miss. It's also how we define ourselves. And I, I imagine maybe you're not someone who's like, I love being in the wild west, but there's something that experience has meaning for you in some ways. Walking around a crowded Manhattan street has meaning for me. It's who I was in my, in what feels like another lifetime. And it allows us connection and a sense of comfort, even the things that we don't love, strangely. I think you hit the nail on the head. It has to be just reflecting on it now, just psychologically, it must be a familiarity thing, just mm-hmm. longing for that connection with something that you know. And it, yeah. And even though it's something that you might not necessarily like, it just, there's comfort in that sense right. of, of familiarity. Right. And I think in the sense of, and again, I'm not sure the word, but in the sense of who we are in that, even when we're in a community that we don't love who we have to be or what our role is, it's still a component of who we are and what our role is. I lived in a neighborhood where every morning all the moms or actually it was just all the moms who walk their kids to the bus. And I lived seriously 10 feet away from the bus stop. And I would sometimes let my young person who was old enough go to the bus stop. And I, the few moms came and knocked on my door and told me how that wasn't okay, that I couldn't, it was ruining it for all the other moms. Like clearly the kid from, way down the street where they couldn't see them at the window. I can understand why they were like, how come that kids get to And I just, the mom bus stop was not my favorite part of the morning. Right. And I missed it with great affection. When we left, there was no bus stop. I had no access. I didn't know any of my neighbors. Um, and so even something that I found to be kind of ridiculous and maybe, you know, not annoying, but silly. I missed it so much because it was wonderful. You got to know every mom on the street. And even if, that wasn't your, you know, even if you weren't, I didn't identify at that point in my life with being able to spend long hours having coffee with, with a group, but it was so lovely to get to know everyone. And I missed that greatly, which was kind of funny. And I sent them all an email being like, guess what? There's no bus stop. So some of it too is, is we don't know how it's going to then register, right? That's so fascinating. The thing that is kind of really coming through as well is it's so it's impossible to say, all right, here's a prescription 
for this person because each and every individual will have a vastly different experience based on so many variables. And even I can imagine you'd probably even tell me if I'm going to move to a different country now, that experience might not, I might not even be able to take anything away from this experience to that experience because they could be two different experiences Mm -hmm. based on where I am in my life at that point. As you said, the circumstance of why I'm going there and all these things can change. Well, I would, uh, um, oh, that sounds so hard. (laughs) No, I'm confident in saying you will be able to, you have developed, everyone develops skill sets when you move. I actually think it's a wonderful exercise in resiliency. And so, uh, and we see that, we see that really well in, for example, teens who transition to college, teens who have lived overseas, having just navigated a transition as an expat a few years before they then go to college, I think do have a markedly easier time in many ways because it's not brand new. It's not the first time they've had to create a different community. But I think the gotcha moment is to never, anytime I've been like, oh, I've got this, you know, I can, I'm moving to a country where English is widely spoken. And no, there's going to be something you don't know that kicks up and is a new challenge or a new endeavor. Um, and there are some days we can see that as really exciting um, and other days where it just is so hard and, and you just don't, you don't always know what it's going to be. It's so funny that you said that about the sort of, I got this thing because my sister, when we were talking about it on the first episode that I sat with her, she said that that's the kind of attitude that she went to the move to the UK because, oh, so many yeah. of my friends have done this, yeah. going to London, it's an English-speaking nation. It's going to be quite easy. She said she took it way too chilled. And she says that right. part of the reason why she struggled so much is because she hadn't gone through the whole process of what happens if this gets difficult. And right. yeah, she hadn't prepared herself for that moment. Right. And I think, yeah, I think also there's commonalities in the external and the internal factors. So what often what we see happens is you would think as a part of a practice, we wouldn't see a ton of folks who are living in London or in Paris or, you know, these, these de- travel destinations that we all think of as being a dream come true. And in reality, I wouldn't say that we see more people, but um, there is a, a common thread where when we see people, let's say we're seeing someone who's living in a, a war territory that's really challenging Yes, that's going to be challenging, but in many ways, it allows an external focus of, I feel very anxious and stressed and I can't sleep because for obvious factors, because there's a concerns around safety and all of these different things. Okay. When you're living in a European capital, there's still stress, anxiety, low mood. You really miss your family. Maybe the way um, when we lived in Austria, I just was chronically apologizing because of how I think that I was viewed from my own cultural context. And so I think we then internalize that difficulty. When I was a young person, I lived in France and I loved France. I love everything about it. But in terms of a warm and fuzzy culture, not so much. Um, I just remember one point where we were living in one place and then we took a flight to Italy. And all of a sudden, this sounds really strange, but we had little kids and the Italian people would would delight in seeing our children would like pat them on their head. And I just walked around crying most of the time because it was so they hadn't had that level of affection in where we were living. And so I think you just, I think it's really important to be able to talk with someone and verify what you might be internalizing. That isn't about you that if that makes sense, because it's tricky. And especially in a place like London, it seemingly you should be happy, right? You should be making friends because you speak the same language. You should be engaging in every, all of the activities you can. And there's all these reasons why that might not happen. It rains a lot (laughs) or it's hard to really get to know people or, you know, um, there's not a really strong expat community as there might be in other places. Yeah. She said the moment that kind of broke her was she was walking with her husband I'm not sure. I don't think they were married yet, but no, I don't think they were, but they were walking and they were going past one of these big open parks where everyone gathers on like sunny days in London. It's like a big thing to go and get your barbecue and your beers and you go to the park and you have a good, spend a good day in the sun. And 
she saw all these people enjoying themselves and all these groups of people sitting together. And in that moment, she was alone with her boyfriend or fiance at the time. And she just started crying. And she's like, I'm so alone. I, yeah. I don't have that. I don't have a community. Right. I don't have a people. I don't have right. people. Right. Yeah. And that was her big yeah. like, aha moment. I'm not doing so well. You talked about sort of people going away to college experiences and then finding it easier to adjust. Do you think it would be similar? I'm just thinking from my background. I've been on exchange programs. So right. when I was in high school, I did a three-month mm-hmm. stint in, an, in another country. And then during my time at university, I was overseas in America for just over a month or so. Do those, even those shorter kind of experiences where you know you're coming back home, mm-hmm. do, do they also help right. um, with with adjustment or is it too short to say? Oh yeah. No, I don't think there's anything really too short. I think going on a vacation for a week, um, you, because you're always learning things and you're always adjusting to things. I think that what you don't have in that month, and especially I'm so impressed at how you talk about being in this loving South Korea for a much longer period of time. My guess is that during that month, you really loved it. And so it, it's helpful, but to always keep the awareness that for, for many people, there typically is a little bit of a dip and that can look like a huge dip into a gully and it takes a while to kind of scrap your way out of that. Or it can look like a very small, I don't love this element of being here. And then there's an adaptation and a lot of that can be based on who you are as an individual and how you came into it. It can also be based on entirely your external circumstances. Um, so it really, it's so individual and situationally dependent in my experience. But of course, I'm going to say everything helps. The more we can throw ourselves into new environments and learn how to navigate the unfamiliar is always going to be a helpful piece. And then talking about the transience of expat communities, something that I've always Mm -hmm. wondered is I sometimes get the sense that in certain expat communities, like the teacher communities here in Korea, a lot of people come over and in their mind they have a date that they want to leave by right so when you go into an overseas adventure like that knowing that you have an end date in mind do you think people are closing themselves off to creating deep connections with people Mm. because sometimes i wonder if in communities like that where people know that they're not going to be staying there and building and setting down roots there's no real reason to make these deep investments into your personal relationships if you're going to be leaving. Is that right. something that tends to happen? Oh, yeah. No, I think it happens on both levels. And I don't. I think a school is a really good example. And this is just my personal experience, so I'm wondering what you found. But it's interesting how when you start, when our kids were in kindergarten and all the way through elementary school, all of their friends, they had a big bubble of friends who were local and international um, that Everybody played freely. Everyone was friends with everyone. And interestingly, by the time you get to high school, um, and we most recently moved during my kids' last two years, which not, there were no good, it was a pandemic. I scrap it up to a lot of different things. But when you're in high school, I think what you often find are, is a complexity where most of the people there by that point in time are local folks in high school. A lot of times, for understandably reasons that I don't know why we didn't hear parents want to have their kids finish out high school in the country where they might go to uni. So that's one piece. Um, But I think it's not just that. So usually by the time the high school rolls around for international communities, it's a a larger percentage of local folks who are native to that country. In addition, a lot of those high schoolers are like, I have gone through so many years of losing my friends that I have these great friends and then they leave and I'm kind of tired of it. And so I think there's also that piece that some of the expat communities, I don't want to say shut down, but in, in the time frame piece for someone who's, I'm in my final year of our current post and I have to challenge myself to still be out there and make new friendships. Some of uh, two of my closest friends I met during their final year in my first year. And I've said to them repeatedly, like, thank you for being open to a new person on your dance card because you just, you don't know. And that's the other really interesting thing. And I'm wondering if you found this that, and and not just expat related, but you don't always know who you carry with you. Exactly. Longitudinal, you know, across time and history. And I think it's surprising. Some people, you know, you meet them and you're like, we are going to be friends forever. Other people, you think that, and then they, you're not. And there's all, sometimes you don't know why. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we're the person that 
leaves that dynamic for whatever reason. And so I think the most we can do and ask of ourselves and the people around us is to have an openness, um, being available for new engagements or friendships or relationships and to not, to try not to shut down, which is a hard thing to do. So a little bit of insight into, I grew up in a place called Cape Town in South Africa, a very famous city. And I'm not sure if international people experience this when they come to Cape Town, but as a, as a Cape Townian and in the groups that I sort of used to hang out with, it feels very clicky. Cape Town feels very, very clicky. If you're not, in a group, yeah. it's very difficult to break in. But yeah. within those groups, the friendships and the relationships are like deeply, deeply solid. So once you break into one group, it's for life. So right. it's it's just yeah. interesting that coming from that environment and then coming to Korea, sometimes there's a bit of that feeling, but then other times you yeah. meet people that are just so open and wonderful. And as you said, you don't know yeah. who's going to who's going to stay with you. And I sometimes have to remind myself to break out of that Cape Town habit of, of closing myself off and, and keeping yeah. just the group that I want around me. And I think it's just something that's right. a little bit ingrained from growing up in Cape Town. It's quite heavily clicky like that. Right. And I think what's, what's interesting in that too, on the other side of it, and I don't know if you found this, is that I think we all bring with us to new communities, your own cultural preconditions of how we navigate and make friends. Right. And so I think that I'm from the Northeast and there is a routine, like you get to know people and then you might do an event with them, or you might go out to lunch and then you might all get your families together. It's kind of a progression of how we navigate making friends and creating communities. And that progression isn't, there's a cultural piece to all of that. And to just kind of throw that out the window when you arrive at a new country. And and this is even within the US, I think. And I had a friend once, and this is going to sound awful, but I still laugh about it, where she arrived at a post where I was living. And she just was always like, well, let's go, let's hang out, let's do something. And it, um, I'm from the Northeast. And it was a lot to navigate initially. And, but she was just so fun and positive that, of course, I was going to do all these things. And then eventually, we became very close. And she talked about her initial adjustment. She names it friendship bludgeoning, which sounds awful, but her approach is like, I don't know who it is, but we're going to be friends because this is, and I, she didn't choose me. She was in my nearby, you know, we live not far from each other. And just the idea of um, certainly not doing that. If you're getting very clear feedback that for whatever reason, that person isn't an option, but the idea of, to not rely on the subtleties like, Oh, you know, I reached out to that person the last time they should reach out to me this time. I found that in the expat world, I'm, I am always reaching out to people and it will take a very long time before then they reach out to me in my experience. And sometimes from a U.S. standpoint, that feels so pathetic, right? Like in the U S if you reach out to people many times, you, you might not want to keep doing that. It's a clear indicator that it's not going to work. But in other countries, especially within the expats where you're navigating, making friends with people locally who have been, you know, in El Salvador, you don't see people on Sundays because they're meeting up with their family and they have like 36 family members who are awesome. And so not being scared to still reach out and to keep at it and to keep trying to cultivate it, I think is really normative. And I've, I found it to be really uncomfortable. But it's certainly a piece that um, I would imagine if I were in Cape Town, that having a scenario where I reach out once and then I wait for people to reach out back to me as an American, no one's going to reach back out to me. It will take a few friendship yeah. bludgeoning kind of tries. I think um, so. <laughs> so. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah. That's why I love speaking to people with different experiences because your perspective there is, is so wise and it makes so much sense. And I think mm-hmm. also another thing that I wanted to ask you was, I was wondering with with the differences in cultural norms, would that, do you think that would sort of scare some people away? Well, the reason why I asked this is when I went to America, for example, there were Americans when I was there, I'm not sure if it was because I wasn't American. They were very, very welcoming. I was invited to things that as a South African, I never would have expected an invitation for. I would have thought it was a little bit, as my mom would say, forward, as in it's a little early to uh-huh. try and start inviting people to those kinds of things. You don't yeah. really know that person that well. Like, what are you doing? Don't invite them. 
for example, I got invited to someone's house for Thanksgiving and I only met them right. on the day. And yeah. as a South African, that almost like scared me away a little bit. I was like, what is going on here? Why, <laughs> why is this person inviting me to their house? Right. So, right. It, I mean, is that, is that something that kind of, that also comes up in your conversations with people that they, the cultural norms, they don't really know how to navigate through them? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's such a great example. And um, I am, I'm laughing at it because um, every time we're overseas, if someone, if I'm hosting and someone doesn't have a home, I will totally cast a wide net because for an American, it's the saddest thing for someone to not be sitting at a Thanksgiving table. I'm sure that like, I don't know if you even have Thanksgiving in South Africa, but I can imagine you're like, I'm okay. I don't really even like Turkey, but it's, you've hit upon a beautiful, beautiful cultural nuance that we Americans, in my experience, um, and part of it also is when I'm overseas, the table is quite small. And so you want it filled with, you know, and there's that whole piece. So I think that registering it as being smart. And if you register it as this is curious, what's the cultural context is one thing. If you register it as something different where, you know, my feeling is off with that, that's the other hard thing, right? How, how do you, the way we, our gut and the way we read people in the world around us is constantly called into question when you're living in a foreign country that you don't know well, or even one that you do, but has such different cultural parameters. So that's, that's such an interesting question. Does it mean that you have to go to every Thanksgiving invitation? No. Does it, and, and especially if it's one where sometimes the feeling can be off because of a cultural piece. I know I've navigated things where I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is. Is it a very different religious element? It is it a cultural element. Is it a Oh, there's so many funny stories that relate to this because I always go into it just assuming it's a cultural piece. And I've been really surprised sometimes when we've gone and, and had meetups with people that when you don't know about the community and all you can do is have your wits about you and be open and occasionally surprised. And then you realize, okay, this isn't a good fit for me. And it's good for me to know, like maybe I don't ever want to go to Thanksgiving again, <laughs> that kind of thing. But I'm sure that, yeah. And also being able to just, Again, that one person that you can say, um, this person I just met invited me to Thanksgiving and this seems really weird. What do you think? And and having someone to be able to talk that, put that out there or talk that through with, I think is really important. I found when I came here, after a while, I didn't necessarily miss South Africa. I missed more so uh-huh. the friends and the family that I left behind. Is that something right. that is also yeah. a common thread in the people that you speak to or the, that your organize, organization speaks to? Um, or sometimes is it that they actually miss the country itself? Is there combinations of things that people miss? I don't know. When, when people ask me, are you homesick? I never felt a longing for South Africa, but I did feel a longing for my friendships right. and my family. Yeah, I think that um, is all of it normal. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think it, it's hard... I personally resonate much more with exactly what you said. And I think what's interesting, it's the, I think it's the duality of missing the friends and the family and missing the experience of being known because you, you miss the people, right? But in dynamics, we're half of that dynamic. And so what's also can feel wildly disorienting is when we move to a new place and we're not known. And so it can be fun. You can kind of live into more of who maybe you, maybe you want to be more outgoing or maybe you want to, I really want to learn how to play tennis. <laughs> um, so, but my point is, so I th- but I think it's that piece of missing the people who you love, but also missing the experience of being known to them. It's really wonderful. Let's say um, you have a close relationship with your parents and you're really good at being a son or daughter And you do it in all these different ways. And when you're 6,000 miles away, you can't do it. And then we lose that sense of how we define ourselves and who we are. That piece of identity. And you just have to find other ways. Yeah. Yeah. And other ways that you can, I I have found what's interesting. And I'm curious if you found this as well, is that um, the longer I'm away from, if I cross paths with someone who I knew at a different period of time, and I'm curious if this would happen. I'm from a small town outside of New York City. Um, and if I had stayed in that small town, I'm sure I would cross paths with people, but it might not have the same meaning because I've always been in that small town. It's very known to me. I know who I am. People know me and that kind of thing. Um, but I found in traveling the world, if I run into someone who I went to kindergarten with 
it accelerates that connection. And it's so wonderful to sit in that space of someone who knew you and who could say, you know, I remember the house that you lived in and remember, and, and having a shared memory, I find to be such a treasured piece in my current lifestyle, because I don't have it a lot. You know, we as expats don't cross paths randomly. Of course, we're going to have our family and that's lovely, but we don't always run into people who know who we are. And it's so amazing when that happens then, because it activates this piece of being known because no one, no one knows anything about anyone that I was before I started moving around at a certain age. And so it, it makes those those connections really special. And it's not about the place. It's all about connecting to that person who we knew and then being able to have them reflect back to us of, it's almost like they bring that to life of like, remember Miss Costello in kindergarten? And, I could, and you're activating this piece that you have not thought about in 45 years. And it's, that is yeah. so neat. Yeah, I've got I've got a friend who lives up in Seoul. Uh, we communicate a lot on on messages, but obviously it's not the same as as meeting up in person. Mm-hmm. And we grew right. up together, and then I went to boarding school. It was at the same school that we're at, but when I when you move into boarding school, it's a different experience to the day school boys yeah. because yeah. you're kind of off in this new family. You almost recreate a family in the boarding house. Right. So. We always we stayed close, but we did we did drift apart a little bit because of that boarding house experience. And then he came over to South Korea before I did. Um, but whenever I see him, I have exactly that experience because we know yeah. we know yeah. parts of each other that nobody else around us has any idea yeah. of, and yeah. that's exactly the same experience I have with him. The funniest story that we share is yeah, <laughs> it's actually ridiculous. He we were playing soccer or or for the people that don't call it soccer football we were playing soccer outside and it was cold it was winter time and i don't know why but he decided to kick at what in south africa is called a jelly tot a jelly tot is basically like a jelly small little jelly sweet covered in sugar and because it was so cold the jelly uh-huh. tot had essentially turned into a rock and so he didn't think about it before he done so, oh, no. and he kicked it and just like yeah. to this day we laugh about the story because of the disproportionate amount of pain he went through from kicking a jelly sweet in the cold. I mean, it's, it's a completely yeah. ridiculous story, but we just resonate on that story. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's such a good story. Yeah. Yeah. And I think perhaps, I mean, of course, if you, of course this happens as you get older, when you have these people, like, but there's something about when you have access to them in this foreign land where you don't know anyone it's like magic that you have that connection and in being known in that way. So this is really interesting. I haven't talked about this at all. So thank you for this discussion. I'm sorry. It wasn't what we were going to talk about, but I'm really no, it's, glad it's great. It I love it when things go in directions that I don't always plan for. It's, it's always great. I know. Sorry. We, we I've got to, we've got to wrap up here. Um, I just wanted to ask you maybe before you run, sure. are there, I, I know that you said it, it's, it's unique to people and things like that, but are there little tips or hints that you can give to people sort of one, two, three that they might want to think about. I know one of the things you mentioned was think about before you go, prepare yourself for what you're walking into. Are there other things that people could maybe, maybe do to help with that adjustment process? Sure. Yeah. I think trying, if there are questions that you have that are important to know the answers for before you get there, for example, all of my work is online. We will never go to a country where I can't have really consistent internet connection because my spouse, my dear spouse is smart enough to know that I will then become (laughs) stressed out. So anything that you know is going to have a huge lifestyle impact, really reach out and figure that out. I always recommend um, if, if um, having a support with a religious framework is really strong for people, that's a really great piece to reach out and know before you land, where is a worship service that you can have access to? It's the same thing with, if you have young children, school is a concern reach out and make all of those contacts before you land. That's not the kind of surprise. If you have a lifestyle component that is really important to you to make sure that that can translate to wherever you're moving to. And and, and so I think there's that level of preparedness. Um, and then the other level is to kind of indoctrinate yourself with a, a sense of kindness and self-care of this is going to take a little while and it's going to be okay, but 
um, get out your calendar and circle a day 90 days out, maybe even longer. And, and to really allow for, it's not that you're doing a horrible job adjusting. It's that it's hard and it's going to be really hard. Um, we moved to Spain, which, you know, what's not to love in Spain? And I kind of speak Spanish. And what's not to love in Spain is the Google Maps system when we live there. It doesn't work. And so I was chronically, what was funny was I was always lost and I was lost on the highways and I was lost like psychological. I just felt I had no, my kids were all in school all day. It was the first time I just had no defining kind of beacon of light and I felt very lost. And so um, a friend of mine once said, it doesn't always work, but it always works out. And so that was kind of, I love mantras as we define things. I think those are really helpful. And then adapting to, I was really, I would just add 45 minutes to anywhere I was going and I was chronically early or lost and then somewhat on time. And it just, I just would laugh where I'd constantly be going somewhere and Google maps would say, you have arrived. And I was in the middle of like a field and I was trying to get to the (laughs) mall and clearly I had not arrived. And so um, a sense of humor is really helpful too. And that, um, and humility of like, yeah, it won't always be like this. And having the, the courage and the strength to have that conversation when you don't have that one person, to seek that one person and to have some substitutes who are far away until then to say, I'm finding this really hard. Because I promise you will find an audience where people will resonate with that. Okay, perfect. That's awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, yeah, Emily. I really, really time. appreciate your time. Yeah. Okay. It was really awesome to get you on. Yeah. Thank you for, for the chat. It's really, it's just really fun to chat with you. And um, I want to know how long you're going to be in South Korea and if you leave from there. Yes, definitely. I'd love it. All right. Have a good day. To those of you who have made it all the way to the end, I sincerely appreciate your support. I hope it helps you, a friend or family member, to adjust to life as an expat. Remember that most expats experience a honeymoon phase, followed by culture shock. Thereafter, you'll make an initial adjustment and finally you'll find acceptance and comfort in your new home country. I've added a link to a summary of the cultural adjustment cycle in the show notes for those of you wanting to see the graph Emily spoke about at the start of the show. If you haven't already, please join me on Facebook. I'm growing a community there where I engage with you and answer any queries. I'm also looking for suggestions for future guests and you can leave your recommendations there. I've added a link to the Facebook group in the show notes. I hope all of you had a great New Year's Eve and I'm wishing everyone a great 2023. Go out and crush this year. Until next time, keep well.